Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer leads us through the Beatitude series called Life Signs of a Believer. If you've ever wondered what the attributes of a follower of Jesus looks like, they are described in the Beatitudes. Today we look at Blessed are the Peacemakers. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. on the Beatitudes, we've just been calling them the life signs of a believer, because it's not just simply, here's God's list of things that if you do these things, you will be happy. It's, they are a blessed people. They are happy that their names are written in the book of life. Certainly, somebody who's a born-again Christian, who's walking with God, who's surrendering to the control of the Spirit of God, possesses joy. But the Beatitudes aren't a list of how to get happy as much as it is. It's an evidence of the fact that you're a true believer. This, not the fact that your name is written in the front of your Bible, is an evidence that you're a child of God. It's that you're converted on the inside, that you behave in a different way. Remember that the Beatitudes are Jesus' opening argument as to what the kingdom of God is like. And he's saying, hey, before you get excited about the kingdom of God, make sure you're actually going there. That's the Beatitudes. John Piper said this about the Beatitudes. He said, with each Beatitude, another nail is driven into a coffin. Inside the coffin lies the corpse of a false understanding of salvation. The false understanding says that if a person can be saved without being changed, or that a person can inherit eternal life, even if his attitudes and actions are the attitudes and actions of unbelievers. Why does he have to say that at all? Well, that's because there's a lot of people who go to church who are Christian-ish. They dress like Christians. They go to a good church. They've been to church all their life. They went to VBS as a kid. Their papa's a minister, right? So, we, we get a lot of folks who think they're a Christian, just they feel comfortable around Christian things, but possibly have never been converted on the inside. Anytime Christianity has been in a culture for very long, the culture tends to absorb parts and aspects of Christianity so that it creates what we call cultural Christianity. That you're a Christian, not because you're converted, but because you like the things about Christianity. It's comfortable, it's familiar to you, it's, uh, it's part of your family heritage, or maybe it's part of your nation's heritage. I mean, heaven's sake, our, our founding documents were based upon biblical principles. And so in America, we have cultural Christians. Even in, even in China, would you believe? There are cultural Christians, it's true. There's a group of Chinese Christians where that particular people group, some people estimate as high as 95% Christians in that people group, and they're called the Lisu. I know about them because when my wife and I, we went to China, we went to the, we would end up moving a lot of our ministry towards northwest Yunnan, and that's in the city of Lijiang where the Lisu were first worked with. Back in 1908, there was a missionary named James O. Fraser, and he worked with these Lisu people, and he He's a pretty brilliant guy. He created a language, a written language, so they could read the Bible. And so, so for a hundred years, these people have had the gospel going through them, and exactly 100 years later, Heath and Amber show up in China. 
And what we found is, as we're working with folks in Northwest Yunnan, there were a number of Lisu brothers who were working there, faithful, godly Christian brothers, passionate about missions, and we were asking them, hey, so is it true that really this many Lisu people are actual believers? And I remember this brother, his name was Lao Yong, and he just stopped me, he said, hey, yes, there's a lot of Christianity amongst the Lisu, but you have to understand, we've had Christianity for 100 years. He says, most of the Lisu Christians are cultural. He says, they're not converted. They're not real, he said. They're not true Christians. They just, it's become part of their Lisu identity. To be a Lisu is to be a Christian. And that just took me aback. But you know what? That exists anywhere where Christianity has been in a culture for a long time, like our nation, where since its inception more than 200 years ago. It's, it's a big part of who we are. And even here in Kentucky, in Appalachia, do we have a lot of Christianity that's been here for a long time? We do. You talk to everybody. I mean, have you met an unbeliever lately? I mean, there's folks, you know, where I'll start sharing the gospel with folks and they'll pause me and they'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I did that already. I prayed the prayer. I grew up in VBS, I did that already. And I'll get that kind of response from somebody who never goes to church. I mean, they got a mouth like a sailor. They're living in uh, addiction after addiction. There's nothing about their life that looks converted, but they'll be like, whoa, 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 don't share the gospel with me. I'm, I did that, I prayed the prayer. And so the Beatitudes are extremely important for an American audience, for us to be able to pause and take a step back and look, is my faith, is it cultural? Or am I genuine in my belief in Jesus Christ? Has it converted me? So in Matthew 5, 9, we're going to look at the peacemakers. Up to this point, we're seeing, as we told you, a growth chart of the believer in the Beatitudes. Early on, we see these conversion level attributes that are evidence in our life. When we are born again, we're poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God. It's all, it's, it's all what Jesus did. It's nothing what I did. We're, we mourn over sin. We're repentant over our sin. We're meek. It's a settled confidence in God. We put our faith in him. And then in some of these middle attributes, we start to see growth attributes, don't we? They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to grow. They want to be pure of heart. I don't want to have anything to do with my former life of sin. I want to be pure. I want to be holy like God is holy. And then later on, we're starting to see these attributes of somebody who's a very mature believer. This week and next week, we're going to look at what it means to be a peacemaker and willing to be persecuted and suffer for our faith. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So now we're not just talking about who you are. This person is doing something. That's one of the evidences that you are maturing in your faith. That you're not just someone who's trying to hitch a ride to heaven. You're maturing in your faith. You're working out your faith. You're doing something in your faith. You're a peacemaker. You're active. You're involving yourself in the work of God. That's... That's maturity. Even in our physical lives, we see that same kind of progression, don't we? You have, you have a child, they're born, they show signs of life. They're breathing, they're hungry, they want to be fed, often at two in the morning, and husbands pretend to be asleep, right? And you know, they're hungry, and they, but there's signs of life. And as that child continues to grow, they can start feeding themselves. You give them a bowl of baby food, and they, they're throwing it on the floor. And they, but they're feeding themselves. And as they get a little bit older, they try dressing themselves. They begin to become more and more like you. They obey. They follow their mother and father, ideally. 
And as they mature further, you start to even give them responsibility, don't you? They become active and they start working. They, you let them pick up their toys. You let them do the dishes. That's why you all have Tupperware instead of fine china. You let them do the dishes. You put them on the lawnmower eventually. You put a machete in his hand. You let them hack weeds up. You, you give them increasing responsibilities. That's what we're supposed to do as we get older and physically mature. We're supposed to get to the place where eventually you're even on your own. You're paying for all your own bills. Furthermore, some of our kids, they even get married and they have kids of their own. Now they're not just paying for themselves, but they're, re they're starting the process over. Now they're caring for the needs of others. That's where we find ourselves in the Beatitudes today. It's someone who's not even just showing life signs. They're not even just take caring themselves, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They're taking an active role in the work of God. That is a strong, powerful evidence that you're not just a Christian, but you are growing. You're a mature Christian in your faith, that you are active in that. You're doing stuff. You don't just come to church and go home. You come to church and say, how can I be a blessing to others? How can I serve? You know, we have a church fellowship, and all of a sudden, miraculously, I don't know, how did all that food get there? You know, how did these chairs just show up in this fashion, in this order? You know, how did that Sunday school in our basement all of a sudden become painted, clean, and decorated? If you haven't seen it, by the way, go down there. They've done some pretty good work down there. Uh, how did all these things happen? It's because we have mature believers who want to take an active role. They don't just want to sit back. They want to do something. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're active in the work of God. And, you know, this is what God intends for us to do as we mature in him is that we take an active role with our faith, that we take responsibility even for the spiritual health of other people. Hebrews chapter five and verse 12 says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. There's an expectation that with enough time that passes, being under the word of God long enough, hearing enough preaching, teaching, you've sat in enough Sunday schools and community groups and Bible studies, enough D groups that you should get to the place where you should be now feeding other people. Does God have that expectation for every believer? There's not a lot of confidence in that response. Does he have that response? Does he have that desire for every one of you as a believer? He does. I want you to hear that and, and receive that. God has no expectation that there's even one believer who just sits and listens and does not take an active role in their faith. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Now, the people that Hebrews is talking to, did they listen? No. So don't feel bad. Here's what he tells them. He says, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Give me back that filet mignon. Let me put a bottle back in your mouth. You can't handle this yet. You, you're not ready for You don't want heavy theology. You don't want to go deep in God's word. You don't want exposition. You don't want to get involved. You just kind of want to come and then go. But he's reminding us there's an expectation of growth. God expects that our growth shouldn't be stunted as believers. In fact, in Galatians 6, he'll say this, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each one will bear his own load. We've told you before, that's the Greek word portion, which is where we get the word portion, that there's a certain portion of work and ministry that God has given to every believer. That's why Ephesians 4 says the role of the pastor, the elder, the teachers, the evangelist, it's to equip the saints, that's you, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that I do ministry, but I invite you to be a part of that. You get to be involved in God's eternal work in something significant. 
But he says each one is supposed to bear his own load, that there's a certain amount of work that God expects us to be able to eventually get to as we mature and as we get older. As we talk about this, it reminds me one time of a date I took with my wife, and I took her out for her birthday. And I said, you know what? This is when we're, we're in the West Orlando part at this point doing church planting. And I said, you know what? Baby, let's go out on a biking date. And so we went out to Oakland Station, West Orlando, and there was a bike trail there. And my wife and I, we rented a tandem bike. You're already laughing. You know where this is going. We rented a tandem bike. And I'm telling you, the double mint commercials from the 1980s set a very high bar of expectation. I mean, those people looked like they were having just the best old time on that tandem bike scooting down the road. So I'm thinking, this is gonna be a very memorable birthday. And so we rent these bikes. And it wasn't very long before I realized my expectations for what tandem biking looks like and my wife's expectations, wildly different things. So I'm getting on that bike and I'm just imagining the wind blowing through my hair. We're having a good time. We're kind of talking. And, but I'm pedaling hard. I get about a couple of miles in. I'm thinking, this feels like a lot more work than it's supposed to be. And so I kind of glance backwards on the bike trail and I notice, I see Amber, she's just smiling. <laughs> and she's just looking around. She's enjoying the scenery. The wind's blowing through her hair. And then I look down at her pedals and I see her, pedal, her feet are resting on the pedals. Resting is in not pedaling. And she's just sitting there, I was thinking, I didn't know you could do that on a tandem, just have the option of just not doing anything while I'm pedaling. And so I quickly reminded her, this is a tandem bike, not a rickshaw. <laughs> By the way, I don't think we've done a tandem bike since then. <laughs> but it wasn't as much fun for me when I was the only one pedaling. And if you will, the church is a giant tandem bike. Every one of us has a seat at the table, but we also, every one of us, God has a set of pedals underneath us. And there's a few people in the church where they're, man, they're like Keith, and they're grinding it out. And they're thinking, is church supposed to be this hard? The answer is no, it's not, when everybody is pedaling. So God has an expectation that everybody is pedaling. There's a certain portion that each one of us does as we contribute to this big hole that we call church. So now let's go ahead and examine the beatitude. Peacemaker obviously involves doing something. You're active in your faith. You're not just coming to church wanting to be fed, be noticed, be appreciated. Hope somebody comes up to me. I hope they notice me. We've gone to the place now where when we come to church, it's not what do I get out of it, but how can I bless others? How can I contribute to the work of the church? But let's look at what it means to be a peacemaker itself. The, re the word peacemaker is a compound Greek word of, of two words, okay? Irene and poiao. Irene if, uh, is a word that means peace. If you know anybody named Irene, any Irenes here today? Uh, if you know an Irene, her name means peace. Uh, peace, it involves rest. It means there's a cessation of, of war. You know, there's, there's not this uh, hostility. It's an end of war. Peace is something that Jesus created between us and God. Now, some people don't realize this. We only hear the God loves us message, but do you know that God is still wrathful against sin? Even my sin. God hates sin. And the Bible says that without Jesus Christ, you know, there is a love that God has for us, but we are in a place of hostility between us and God. And the only way to end that hostility is the peace that Jesus brings. Colossians 1.20 says, through him, Jesus, 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus brings us peace between us and God. And so that's the kind of peace that we're talking about here. The second part of this, poieo, means to make. In Ephesians 2.10, it talks about, but we are his workmanship. It's a different form of that word, uh, poema. And so it's God's workmanship. And so poieo has the idea of it's something that you're doing. It's a work. It's an investment. And so it, it, a peacemaker is somebody who identifies that their work in life is to, cre is to take the peace of God that's within them and to share it with other people. Now, we've got to ask ourselves the question here. Now, what kind of peace is this? Is this just that we are trying to help men find peace with God, or is it that we try to help men find peace with one another? Because there's certainly an aspect of where we've been entrusted by God to carry out his message of peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19 says, Christ reconciled us to himself, and then look what he did. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus' job of bringing men to a place of peace with God, Jesus gave that job to us. And entrusting to us, it says, the message of reconciliation. And so we have a responsibility to be peacemakers, to make men at right with God, that we're active in evangelism. And we become passionate about it. But we're also certainly be people who live peaceably amongst one another and create peace with man. Ephesians 4, 2-3 says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. You mean Christian unity doesn't come accidentally? I mean, do churches, are they just naturally unified at all times? Not any more than your home is unified. Do you want to give testimony this morning to that? Does your home, to be a peaceful home, does it take work and effort on your part? It did in my home. I think it probably does with yours. It takes work. Same thing in a church. We have to be eager to maintain, to do the things that are required to maintain a peaceful environment within the church. Romans 12, 18 even says individually, if possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If there's going to be a lack of peace between you and somebody else, just make sure it's not because of you. And so we have both aspects in the Bible that are commanded of us. So to be a peacemaker, what are we talking about here? Is it between man and God or man and man? I would say yes. The Greek scholar Spiros Zodiades said, he is not simply one who makes peace between two parties. So it certainly involves that, and that's usually where people stop, that we're just peacemakers in between people. But he says it goes deeper than that. It's also one who spreads the good news of the peace of God, which he has experienced. And so it is both and, that the idea is that if you've truly received the peace of God in your heart, that God has taken your heart and he has reconciled you to the Father, if peace is what fills your heart, then peace should be what comes out of you. Whether you're dealing with other people or whether, whether you're trying to unite them to God, your heart is so filled with the peace of God, you want everyone to experience that same peace of God and experience peace with one another. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, treasure, by the way, is something that you, you store away, whether you're a pirate on a beach or whether you're somebody putting money in a mutual fund that's treasuring away something valuable. Bible says our hearts are just a repository, and we either put good in it or we put bad in it, and then when we go to make decisions, we reach inside that heart and we pull out what's in there. It's either good or bad. And she says, the good man 
out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil, out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So whatever, whatever, you may look a certain way, but when it comes down to daily life, choosing to speak and how you interact with people, that's when we get to see what's really inside your heart. Is the peace of God truly inside you? What, I don't know, let's see what's coming out of you. We can't always fully know. Now I've got myself a little bit of uh, audiovisual here this morning, a little bit of sophistication. You gotta go to seminary to learn this kind of stuff. So here we go. I've got here, oh, this is gonna be a lot of fun. I'm going to whip up a fine little dish here for you. I have brought with me here a can of peaches, mainly because I love peaches. Uh, I adore peaches on anything. Peach, peach ice cream, uh, peach shakes, peach cobbler. Thank you very much, appreciate that. And so I brought myself a can of, is this indeed what I brought here, my brother? Okay, and I wish to share that with you. In fact, I even brought a fork. Are you hungry this morning? Okay, you will be. So I brought this tasty can of peaches, Kroger brand yellow cling, whatever cling means, sliced peaches. And so I wanted to share that with you. And how do you know that peaches are actually what's in here? The truth is, you're, there's two things. One, you're taking my word for it. Second of all, there's a label that says sliced peaches. Now, you guys are clever. You're already thinking, but this is a sermon illustration. If peaches come out of this thing, I'll eat my hat. Okay, so, but you know, the, the truth is, you don't know what's inside here. All you have is you take my word for it, or you can look on the outside. The label sure says it's very peachy content inside. Uh, whew, a lot of sugar. 15 grams of sugar. Peaches, this is good, but the only way you truly know what's inside this can is you're going to have to apply pressure to that can, aren't you? And so we have brought with us the staff can opener. Okay, so I'm gonna open up this lovely can of peaches. You can't wait to see what's inside, can you? You are very excited. And I found with this can opener, I have to go in reverse for whatever reason. So I'm opening this up, I'm applying pressure. Think of what you're doing to a can. You're cutting in, you're putting pressure on it. It's really difficult, oh boy. This is exactly what you thought. I hope you're hungry. I brought you a fork, okay? This is gonna be for you. Enjoy these lovely peaches. Have you ever had green peaches before? These have either, no, okay, one of two things is happening here. Either these peaches have been here an awful long time, or I've been lying to you the whole time. Which one do you think it is? She's, she call me a liar. Okay, fine, you won't call me a liar, but no, it's true, I, I, these are peas. Uh, would you feel disappointed, you go down to Kroger, Nick, and you buy yourself a can of peaches, would you be disappointed, you get home, you apply pressure to it, and you find out the contents of the can have peas. Not good peas either, canned peas. Would you be disappointed? I'd be very disappointed, because there's not a soul in the world that brags about grandma's pea cobbler. <laughs> but you know, for a lot of Christians, that's kind of how we are, isn't it? You know, we have, uh, we have here this, what we present ourselves to people as, I'm a can of peaches, I'm a peachy Christian. You know, but the truth is, you know, you're, you're wearing peachy clothes, you got the peachy label, you're in a peachy church, you're doing peachy things, you got a peachy testimony. But some of us, we got pea hearts. It's not real. 
It's not what, what's on the outside and what we want to present to people is it? Now, how do we discover what's really on the inside? Pressure gets applied to your life. You have a conflict with somebody, something that doesn't go your way. You have difficulty, health issues that come up. And then that pressure of life squeezes you like a can opener. It cuts in and it reveals to us and everybody else what's really on the inside. The idea of the Beatitudes is if the peace of God is inside of you, then when pressure of life hits you, more often than not, what should come out is peace. How are we doing? Are we labels or are we truly, are we true to our label here or are we just masquerading as a can of peaches? Well, let's examine this beatitude a little bit further. We're going to uh, look at James chapter three in verse 13 to 17. As we examine what it means to be a peacemaker and what it means to be a can of peas. You know, we're gonna talk about the peachy Christian, we're gonna talk about the pea-filled Christian. James chapter three, verses 13 to 17. James is to the New Testament what Proverbs is to the Old. It's a book of wisdom. It's how do we take the, the truths of God's word and how does it affect how I live daily with y'all? How do we treat one another? How do we live in this universe? James chapter three, at the beginning of this chapter, he get, just got done talking about the tongue, that a believer, if we wanna have genuine faith, we should be those who are able to control our speech that we tame the tongue, that the Holy Spirit has, this, uh, this Holy Spirit get, fruit is self-control, and so I don't just, the uh, Bible says a fool gives full vent to his anger. Fool, biblically, is somebody, you know, who does not know God. And James has been comparing and contrasting. He's talking about dead works, and he's talking about those who are truly alive. Faith without works and faith with works. Those who are dead, those who are alive. Those who are wise, those who are foolish. And so he's comparing and contrasting those who are born again and those who are not, those who just appear, those who have a peach label. We're gonna see here in James chapter three, verse 13, the immature display a lack of peace. He says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, look around. He says, which one of you are wise? Now he doesn't mean smart here. You know, which one of you guys can figure out how to program the universal remote? He's talking about those who are wise, those who possess the wisdom of God. You know how to take the word of God. You live obediently to it. You live the way God wants you to live. You're somebody who has faith and works. You're truly converted. He says, who is wise? Who's truly converted among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show that his works are in the meekness of wisdom. He connects meekness and wisdom together. A settled confidence in God and trusting that his ways are right are going to lead us to live a different way amongst people. Let him show his works with the meekness of wisdom. We either trust God in meekness, and that's what meekness is. It's that trust in God that leads us to be calm, at ease. We're not freaking out causes us to respond differently to trial, respond differently to authority, respond differently to, you know, just pain and suffering that we receive from other people. That's what meekness does. But if you're not gonna trust in God like a thoroughbred horse, you got this might and this power, but they're willing just to be gently guided by their master to go where the master wants. If you won't trust the master, you're gonna trust in yourself. And that leads us to verse 14. When we only trust in what we can control, we get verses verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
James is saying that there are symptoms to lacking the peace of God in your heart, and part of that is is you're, you're creating environments where there are no peace. He says there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter, let's pick this apart a little bit. Bitter literally means sharp, prickly, and in some context it means pungent, smelly. Uh, This is something that is off-putting. It's something you don't want to be around. It's something that's prickly and painful. He's saying that's that's what bitter is. And he connects that word bitter to jealousy. It's the word zealous. We get the word zealous. The idea is that you have some people, and maybe you'll feel a certain way about something. You you may get a little upset or whatever, and you're self-controlled. But other people, they will jump right up to here. You've been around folks like that? You know, they want something so passionately and so desperately, they're gonna fight for everything. And they will, they are not afraid to hurt people, to be bitter, to be sharp, to be prickly and pointed, and to hurt people to get their way. I was hard, I was cutting down some what I think is maiden grass on the top of our hill, and with these soft pastoral hands that don't do a lot of manual labor anymore. Uh, I was just handling the grass and taking it down to be burned, and I cut myself up so good because I wasn't smart enough to wear gloves. And it, that's the idea here, is that you, constitutionally, bitter, bitterly jealous people, they're painful to handle. When you're around them, they leave wounds on people all around the home, the workplace, and at the church. Bitter jealousy, their desire for what they want, their desire to have things their way means that they're willing to harm people to get what they want. It doesn't matter how I get there as long as I am pleased in the end. James is saying that when somebody is unwise, they lack the wisdom of God, they're unsaved, that's a characteristic. They're willing to hurt people to get what they want. And then he says selfish ambition. Ambition is just a desire. Selfish ambition is when we simply are concerned about ourselves. The idea is that this word actually in ancient literature was used to describe a mercenary. Mercenaries and soldiers, they both fight, but they fight for different reasons, don't they? The soldier fights for a cause, maybe for his country. Many of you have fought for our country. We thank you for that. But a mercenary doesn't have your same heart. He's not semper fi, he's like semper my, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always faithful to myself. I want what I want. That's what a mercenary does. What do I get out of this? Star Wars fans, it's Han Solo. You remember the first episode, which is actually episode four, confused me as a kid in the 70s, you know. Episode four, the first episode of Star Wars, you got Luke and you got Leia and they're fighting for the cause. They're fighting against tyranny and the, the, the empire. But along comes this, this happy-go-lucky, plucky guy named Han Solo, and to get Obi-Wan and everybody, or whatever, to Luke off of the planet, he wants money. He gets into the Rebel Alliance area, and he starts getting friendly with Leia and other friends and stuff, and he's hanging around, and nobody's quite sure where Han is at. Is he in, is he out, is he with us, or is he still just this mercenary guy, somebody who's using the institution of the Rebel Alliance just to profit himself to gain what he wants? In fact, in that first episode, when it really comes down to it, the most important mission of all, we're going to fight the Death Star. I'm not ruining this movie for anybody, am I? I mean, this movie is like 50 years old. Okay, so they're going to fight the Death Star here, and where is Han at this point? This guy is packing his bags. He's bailing out. He's going home. He got his money. He used the Rebel Alliance to get money for himself, and he's out of here. 
And Luke, eventually at the end of the movie, uh, when they're about to fight the Death Star, goes up to Han and says, Han, we need you. He says, we're all in this together and you say you're a part of this thing. Well, are you? Han's response was the typical mercenary response. He says, I'm trying to make a living. You're looking from help, for help from people who have none to spare. And then Luke responds to him with some wise words. He says, it's not about making a living, it's about a way of life. Now, I don't think Luke had James chapter three in mind when he said that, uh, but he could have. He's trying to show us that in life, in your home, at the work, in the church, don't be mercenaries. Don't just try to use every institution out there, the home, to meet my needs. Do I work just to meet my needs? The church, how does it please me? How does it meet my needs? This is, this is a mercenary heart, and it is, it is uh, descriptive of what it means to, be, to have selfish ambition. Everything is just filtered through, how does this benefit me? But I'm not actually working for a higher cause, Jesus' cause, something beyond me. I'm just in it for me. What do I get? I should always be pleased at this point. And in churches, we can still get mercenaries, can't we? Where people come to church and their first question is, what do I get out of this? Does the pastor preach too short? Does he preach too long? Does he preach too much in the New Testament, too much in the Old Testament? Does the, uh, is the music, is it too modern? Is it not modern enough? Is it too loud or is it too soft? Is the temperature too hot in here or is it too cold? Is it, is it comfortable? Do I like the paint color? Should the carpet be changed or shouldn't it be? All of this should please me. When we have a business meeting, it should always go my way. And if it doesn't, everybody's gonna know. These are evidences of a mercenary heart, selfish ambition. I should be pleased. In a church, who's the most important person to please? It's God. Because this church, it's not the pastor. It's not my church. And this isn't your church either. This is Jesus' church. Remember, the Bible says, Ephesians tells us, he is the head of the church. The church glorifies him, and so when we come together and we vote, is it to decide what the will of the people is? No. As a people, we don't vote for what's best for me. That's selfish ambition. We vote for what? What pleases Jesus. When we do stuff in the church, whether it's church schedules, times, events, activities, classrooms, which room you meet in, does any of that really matter? No, what matters is, is it accomplishing the mission of God, and does it please Jesus? If that's what it does, then then I'm happy. That's when you're on the side with Luke and Leah and you're fighting for the cause. When we're just fighting for what we want, friends, we're in, we're in the camp of Han Solo. This should please me. He says, when jealousy, James, back to James 3 here, let's get out of Star Wars, let's go to James. Jealousy and selfish ambition, when they arise in a church, he says, when you see this arising in your heart, he tells those who are going to church, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, when you, have, when you look in your heart and you see bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, he says, don't get cocky. Don't start boasting that you're a believer. Don't get so confident that you're a true child of God because when those things are present in your life, it speaks against your conversion. Don't be boasting, and he says, and false to the truth when you're using God to meet your own needs. We're mercenaries. But we have not yet given ourselves to Jesus as Lord and joined the cause for ourselves. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy don't lead to peace but to war. And anytime you see fighting in a home, fighting in a church, fighting in the workplace, mark it down, there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that's behind it. In fact, if you continue to read on in the book of James, in James chapter 4, he talks about that, doesn't he? 
He says, uh, James 4, 1 through 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. That word passion there is a, is a word translated lusts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these kind of things. When there is fighting in a situation, mark it down, somebody somewhere is in the flesh. I mean, unless you're like the book of Jude where it says earnestly contend for the faith. But even then, if you're contending for the faith, you're still having to fight somebody who's in the flesh. So anytime there's a fight anywhere, a quarrel anywhere, mark it down, somebody is in the flesh. They're, they're exercising selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. And, he's, and to those people, God would say, careful, don't be boasting that you're a believer if you're characteristically living this way because God's children, if we're peacemakers, because we've been filled with the peace of God. We live life differently. We treat people differently. James 3.15 now, he says this, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. Where, where does bitter jealousy and selfish ambition come from, does he say? You got a Bible, what does he say? He says it's earthly. It didn't come from heaven. God didn't give you that. God isn't wanting you to break up relationships because you want the, the foyer to be painted blue. He says it's earthly. He calls it unspiritual. Spirit of God isn't telling you to act like that. It's unspiritual. If it's not spiritual, what is it? It's fleshly. And then, oh boy, that's a hard word. That kind of thinking, that kind of behavior, what does he call it? Demonic. When's the last time you called something demonic? We, we reserve that term for pretty harsh things. Last time I think I heard that term used was when I was a little kid. And my mom was warning about this game that's out there called Dungeons and Dragons. Remember that back in the 80s and every parent was afraid their kid was going to become a witch or kill somebody? And my mom was warning me. She says, you don't want to be one of those kids. Stay away from that game. And she would say, it's demonic. She was saying it's motivated by the forces of hell. Stay away from that. James is saying that about selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. He's saying when we feel that way, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. That when we speak that way, we treat people a certain way, he says it's being motivated by the forces and the powers of hell. That seems like a pretty harsh term for that. But if that feels too harsh for you, it might be that we've just grown too comfortable with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James calls it demonic. Now, how is self-centeredness demonic? What does self-centeredness have to do with, with Satan and, and, and demonic activity? It has everything to do with it. Satan is the most selfish being in the universe. Read about when Satan was given everything. He was made, he was the highest ranking created being in the universe. And it wasn't enough for him. He was self-centered. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, you can read about it. He talks about, I'm gonna be like the most high. I'm gonna be just like God. And then he comes down to earth and he spills that same kind of venom. He tells Adam and Eve, God is withholding from you. That, that fruit that you wanna take, God is withholding something good from you. He knows you'll become like him. God doesn't mean his best for you. You need to sin. And so Satanism is the most self-centered thing in the universe. In fact, my wife and I, we were, there was a bookstore we used to always go to in Bangkok. Uh, they have great malls in Bangkok and a really wonderful international bookstore uh, where we could get English books. And so we would go there and we'd shop. And while my wife and my daughters were sitting down and reading through books, and I'd, be, I'd always wander over to the religion section, figure that. 
But their religion section had everything, Christianity to, I don't know, stuff from the cults to who knows what. Well, I think some of these books got mixed up because I was looking through just some of these, these books and I'm just kind of taking them off and just seeing what do they say. And, and I come across this book and I open up the introduction and it starts complaining about the church. Okay, interesting take. And it starts complaining about how God and Jesus are trying to hold you back from getting everything that you want. And you shouldn't have to live self-controlled lives. Give in to your urges. Give in to your flesh. Do what's good for you. I thought, what book is this? And come to find out, it was the introduction to like the satanic verses. It was like some kind of witchcraft Satanism primer. And I thought, wow. Lesson one in the camp of Satan is this world exists to glorify you, make you happy, feel good, take care of all of your physical drives, and just invest in it. And anything that tells you to exercise self-control is obviously bad for you. Self-centeredness is lesson one in Satan's playbook. You worry about you. You think about what's good for you. You fight for what you want. What does James call it? Demonic. In fact, whenever there's selfish ambition or bitter jealousy, he says disorder in every vile practice is going to come out from it. Disorder is confusion, it's tumult. People don't know what's going on. It's, 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 it's who's leading this thing anyway, who's going, where, where are we going, what's happening. People are fighting over things, it's tumult. It's, it's one of those business meetings that we've all been a part of at some point in time. It's difficult. He says when that is taking place, the, the previous attitudes of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are motivating that. So whenever you see confusion, tumult, uncertainty, there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition driving it. When God is behind something, 1 Corinthians talks about everything will be done decently and in order. Satan is, a, Satan is the author of confusion. He says, in every vile practice, every vile practice, this is the broadest Greek term possible to describe every kind of sin, the whole spectrum of sin, everything from just time wasters all the way over to things that God would call an abomination, things that are morally repugnant to God. And so what he's saying is, every kind of sin you can imagine will arise when we get self-centered when we are driven by to be bitter, to hurt people, to get what we want. When we be full of selfish ambition, we get a mercenary heart. Number two, mature people, though, they display increasing amounts of peace. I want you to see in verse 17, he says, the wisdom that is from above is first, and you're gonna see a pattern here that looks familiar. It's first pure, and then peaceable, then gentle, which is another word for meekness. Where, where, where have you seen kind of a progression like this before? I'll give you a hint. We've been studying it for the past several weeks. This should remind you a lot of the Beatitudes here because many of these are Beatitudes. It's first pure. What does that sound like? Pure in heart? It's peaceable. That's today, peacemakers. You're a peaceable person. Gentle, meek. We studied blessed are the meek. And so these are, these are character qualities of mature believers, true believers. He says they are also open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit. They're impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This word peaceable here, the root word is the same as our beatitude, irene. But this particular form of irene just simply means that this is somebody who, as their base attitude, is predisposed toward peace. Yeah, they can get upset about things, but by and large, 
They are people who are constantly looking for a peaceful approach, a peaceful outcome with people. That's wisdom from above. That's when somebody is a born-again believer. These characters describe somebody who's been transformed by God. If you have the peace of God on the inside, when you're squeezed by people, when pressure in life and argumentation or something doesn't go your way squeezes you, that can opener of your life opens up and we get to see what's truly on the inside. Peaches are peas. He says that we are gentle, that we're meek, we have a settled confidence in God and that changes how we treat people. He says that we are open to reason. This means that we are easily persuaded toward peace, that sure, we can get upset, we can get our feelings hurt, we can feel offended, but it doesn't take much when somebody shows just the littlest bit of initiative to move us from the side of hostility back toward a peaceful relationship. We're easily motivated, easily moved toward that. It's sort of like if you, you come across a dog and he doesn't know you and he's kind of scared of you and so he's barking at you and he looks pretty fierce, but what do you do? You know his heart. His real heart is he wants to be your friend, right? So, so you go up to him, you go down, you start talking in a high voice. You know, you want to go outside? Or you put your hand down there and you let him smell your hand and you slowly sneak a hand in there to kind of pet him a little bit. You throw, me, throw a little snack down on the ground. Pretty soon, what's that dog going to do with you? He's going to lick your hand. He's going to start kind of bouncing up and down, wagging his tail. He's going to start running. He's going to bring a stick and drop it in front of you. And because the basic disposition of a dog is he may not trust you, but if you show a little bit of kindness, he is easily moved to the side of peacefulness, of joy, to enjoy your relationship because that's, that's how God made the dog. You ever try that with a mountain lion? <laughs> You're out there hiking in the woods. <laughs> You know, where mountain lion are. Do we have mountain lions in Kentucky? I don't know. I hope not. So you, can, you discover a mountain lion out there, and you try the same thing you did, you know, with Fido over there. And you, hello, you want to go outside? <laughs> can I do, you smell my hand a little bit, you know? Let me throw a Scooby snack out on the ground. Let's see how we do with this, this mountain lion. What's he going to do? He's going to run up. He's going to bite your neck, and he's going to drag you down the street, and he's going to enjoy you at his leisure. It's because dogs and mountain lions have different hearts. A dog is predisposed to want to have peace, to enjoy you, to have fun with you. And it doesn't take much to push them over to the other side of peace. Mountain lions? Not so much. Mountain lions have a very self-centered disposition. You don't see, thank God, you don't see packs of mountain lions. They're not communal beings. They're, they're loners. They're out there and they're looking for number one. And anything that moves is a possible meal for me. They have a different heart. Bible says there's, there's people out there in the community, people out there in the world, even people in the church. We have different hearts. God's people are easily moved. We're like the puppy dog. Sure, we can get angry, we can bark, we can get scared, but we're easily moved over to the side of peace. Whereas some people have mountain lion hearts. They're just in it for them, and they are willing to bite your neck to get what they want. But that is characteristic, the Bible says, of somebody who doesn't know God. They lack God's peace. He says also we're full of mercy. We're forgiving people. We're full of good fruits, the fruit of the Spirit, the things that arise from a, a godly life. It's the opposite of every vile practice, that God's children whose hearts are filled with peace, every manner of good thing comes from them. They're sweet, they're fun, they're enjoyable, they serve you, they're kind, they put your needs before their own. That is what God's children look like. They're peaceful people. 
They're impartial. It means they're willing to show it to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. They love you because that's who they are. They seek peace with you because they're a person of peace. And it also says they're sincere. It's just a word that means without hypocrisy. They're not fakey about it. They don't just want the label of peaches. They want you to open up and find out that when you hurt me, you're gonna find I'm a peachy Christian. I'm on the inside, my outside, my inside, they match. Now, verse 18 is an interesting verse that we're gonna to have to look at for just a minute. It says, the result of having true peace in our heart with God will result in peace with others. And he says this, a harvest of righteousness, that's what we get, is sown in peace, that's how we work, by those who make peace, it's what we do. And so he's talking about peace-loving Christians. A harvest of righteousness just describes everything that you want to come out of the church. It's, it's, it's a harvest of right things. We're living holy lives. We're sharing the gospel with lost people. We're discipling people. People are getting along. They're hugging each other. They're shaking hands. They're fellowshipping. We're moving together as one body, speaking one voice. We're unified. All these good things. This is a harvest of righteousness. Everything you want the church to be. How do we get there? He says, it is sown in peace. In other words, when we work together, we work a certain way. We work peacefully among one another by those who make peace, by the peacemakers, the true children of God who evidence that they have peace on the inside by working and living peacefully with others. That results in a harvest of righteousness. We all want that in the church, but we have to, it means that first of all, we have to be peacemakers. We have to be doing the work of peace, involving ourselves in the work of God, but then it means too that we do it God's way, that we live peacefully with one another, and we work peacefully, and we may not always get our way. Do you know I don't get everything I want in this church? I truly don't, but it's okay because this church isn't about Heath and what Heath wants. This church is about what is best for God. Now, granted, I have a certain position of, of leadership and influence here, but together as a body, we're, we're seeking what Jesus wants and what glorifies him, not me. I hope you have that same spirit about yourself as well. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's describing about people who make peace, people who are actively peacemakers. They're doing stuff to reconcile men to God. They're not just saying, boy, I hope that guy gets saved. Let's put him on the prayer list. He's saying, God, give me the opportunity to share the gospel with him. That's a peacemaker. They're not just praying that people get saved. God, bless all the missionaries of the world. Pray that somebody will get saved. They're saying, you know what, God? Help me to talk. I'm praying for these five people in particular. I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek to make peace. Jesus has given me the ministry of reconciliation. I wanna reconcile him to God, and we're looking actively for ways to share the gospel with people in our lives. We're not praying that the church does it. We're praying me, God, help me to do it. That's a peacemaker. Furthermore, a peacemaker helps make peace between brothers and sisters too, don't they? You choose the peaceful response when somebody hurts your feelings. And by the way, you're in a church. Are people in the church good, kind, godly people? You smell good, you dressed up, you showered, you're wearing your nice clothes. Are they still gonna hurt you from time to time? Does your mate hurt you from time to time? Don't elbow them, okay? We do, family, sometimes we can, we can offend one another. Are you gonna be peaceful with them? We make peace individually. What about if you see people not at peace with one another? Do we ever interject ourselves to try to help mediate that and to make peace? 
I would say a peacemaker does exactly that. They're active in the role of making peace even within the church. You hear somebody complaining, you hear somebody angry, you hear somebody griping about somebody, sowing discord, they're slandering people. Do we just kind of listen and go, huh, well, I'm not doing it, you know, I'm not, but I'm I'm just listening. They're the ones doing it, I'm just listening. Does God hold us complicit when we just listen to evil lips? Just like inviting a drug dealer to your basement to make his meth lab in your basement, you are guilty. Proverbs 17.4, we've used this before, what does it say? Proverbs 74 says, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. What kind of person not actively engages in evil speech, they just listen. I'm just listening. What does God call us? We don't like that verse, do we? God calls us evildoer. God sees that we're complicit. When we just give negativity, gossip, slander, backbiting, discord, a safe place to land, God says we're complicit in that sin. He says we're an evildoer and a liar. And so a peacemaker is not someone who just, and I would go as far as to say we don't just walk away from that situation. A peacemaker is saying, I identify an area here in my home, at work, or at church where there's a lack of peace, and I'm gonna help try to bring a loving word of peace here. And so we might consider just telling that person, hey, listen, and not being mean, not rebuking them, not being cruel about it, but just saying, you know, it sounds like you've got a real serious concern, and I can appreciate that. You know, and in church or in your home or wherever, you, you can disagree with things. That's okay to do that. But I would encourage you to consider Matthew 18. It says, when we have ought against a brother, when there's something between us, it says, go to him alone. We don't have to, we aren't supposed to share it with other people. We go to that person alone. We resolve it on an individual basis. I would encourage you to to consider doing that. See, this is, that's the work of a peacemaker. Somebody who doesn't just hope that we're peaceful people, they actively engage in the peace work of God. Uniting men to God and men with one another. Friends, that's when you're mature. Because at home, is is it little Johnny that's trying to help his brother and sister get along? If he's the firstborn, maybe. But typically, who is it that has to jump in? It's mom and dad. Kids are fighting and mom and dad get in the mix of it. Hey, come on. They're your family and there's the only ones that are gonna love you the rest of your life. <laughs> Hug it out, you know. And so the mature one is trying to make peace between these people. Can you imagine if mom just kind of sat in there and just listened or watched these kids fighting it? Yeah, hey, I got two bucks on Johnny over here, you know. Just watching the kids fight it out, but doing nothing to stop the fighting and the argumentation. You would say that is not a very mature mom. Peacemakers actively engage to make peace because peaceful churches don't happen by accident and they don't happen from getting rid of all the people who don't make peace. It means the rest of us mature ones, the ones who have the peace of God, we take an active role in the work of God, uniting man with God and man with one another because we care too much about the mission of God. Close here, Matthew 5, 9 says, it's only peacemakers who are called what? The sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. When you make peace with people and you're uniting man with God and man with man, it's then that people say, you know, you remind me an awful lot of somebody I know. You look like God because God in the Old Testament, what was one of his titles? Jehovah Shalom, God of peace. What is Jesus called? He's the prince of what? The prince of peace. And when we are peacemakers uniting man with God and man with man, we're not fighting people, but we're trying to bring people back together. People are going to go, wow, that, you remind me an awful lot of somebody I read about in the Bible. You see, God and Jesus, 
you will be called sons of God. It's then that we evidence that the Spirit of God lives within us, that his DNA courses through our veins. It's an evidence that we're a true child of God, that we're born again. You see, God makes peace. God's children make peace. Do you make peace? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning as we study your word and what it says about peacemaking. I pray that as we look through these attributes, we'll first of all just look at our own hearts and say, God, am I a cultural Christian? Do I just associate with a mercenary heart alongside of the church because I like what it gives me? I like the friendship. I like the food. I like how it makes me feel. I like the joy. But God, am I truly converted? Is my Christianity more than cultural? Is, am I converted? And secondly, Father, I pray that you would help us ask the question, am I growing? Have I grown past just showing some basic life signs like a baby where I expect for people to do things for me all the time? Have I gotten to the place where I'm contributing, where I'm growing, where I'm not asking what are people doing for me, but I'm, when I come to church, I'm looking for what are some ways that I can contribute to others that I can evidence my maturity in caring for the spiritual needs and development of other people. Father, I pray that you will be glorified in the way that we contemplate your word, the way that we examine our own hearts, the way that we worship you. God, be glorified in how we leave this place. May we leave here peacemakers. May people, this entire community, God, I pray that Unity Baptist Church, we would live up to our name and that we would be known as a people of peace, a, a safe place where Christians can come and worship God freely, hear the word of God taught, uh, and enjoy relationships with one another without all the pain and hardship, hardship that we experience everywhere else in the world. God, make this a, piece of, a place of peace, something that models the heart of God, models the heart of Jesus. Let that peace begin with us personally. We pray in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.